Welcome back. It's Deb Hutton sitting in for Reshmi Nair this afternoon and actually all this week. Thanks so much for spending some of your afternoon with you. We'll try to get you home. Weather certainly way better today than we're hearing it will be tomorrow. Although I'm always a little suspicious that's as bad, maybe because I live in Toronto, it's as bad as they're predicting. But I have been proven wrong before. And one of the people that'll let you know tomorrow morning what your commute is going to be like is John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, who's joining me this afternoon along with Reverend Michael Korn, who is a News Talk 1010 contributor. Gentlemen, welcome to The Rush. Nice to be here. Pleasure to be here. So let's, uh, a lot of play, John, you and I even spoke about it this morning, the the coffee cup uh, controversy as it relates to the pro-Palestinian protest at the 401 and Avenue Road. So I'm going to move on to the other protests that happened yesterday, uh, and that was Olivia Chow hosting her first skating party as mayor out at Nathan Phillips Square. Lots of people there ready to to have a social afternoon, have some hot chocolate, and we saw a, a fairly large pro-Palestinian protest crash the party. Uh, Chow's handlers moved her off, uh, took her skating, uh, surrounded by some female hockey players. But ultimately, it, it basically interfered with her entire afternoon and with the enjoyment, I would argue, of Torontonians just trying to participate in a little winter activity. What I want to ask specifically, and I'll start with you, John, on this, is whether you think Chow's response was adequate given what happened there. She said, did you not see uh, my call for a full ceasefire uh, by Israel and the return of the hostages, thinking that that was going to quell the protest? Just curious. Yeah. um, You know what? One of the interesting aspects in all of this is that people mostly on the left, I think, are in a bit of a pinch because where some people are criticizing those who have not been stridently condemning Hamas enough, others are upset, actually, that there is this level of support for Israel. And so that's the the, the, that's the sort of the fault line in Justin Trudeau's caucus. And I think it's a problem for Olivia Chow. Um, I would just say that. You know, the funniest thing in in sort of completing this thought is that Olivia Chow and the people who were heckling her last night are more or less on the same page. They are calling for a ceasefire. So they're trying to pick a fight with her. They're trying to drown her out. They're trying to wreck an evening where a bunch of people probably troop downtown with their kids hoping for a good night. And they and Olivia Chow more or less share the same political page. Michael Korn. Well, I I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I think Olivia is in that social democratic tradition, which is relatively moderate, which has always shown uh, fairly active support for Israel. But there's a wider issue here. Extremists live in a bubble. It's narcissism, it's lack of self-awareness, both the hard left and the hard right. And the worst thing, and I support a ceasefire. I I, I think Israel's military actions in Gaza are dreadful. They're extreme. uh, They're self-defeating. And and they should stop right now. But of course, I immediately and still do condemn the barbarism of Hamas. But if you really want to have people to support Israel and have limited sympathy for the Palestinian cause, keep occupying highways, keep closing down uh, tunnels in the United States, and keep going to a Santa Claus parade and, and, and making people feel embarrassed and humiliated and uncomfortable. Why they're doing this? Well, I know why they're doing this. Not because I think they care particularly about the Palestinian cause, but because they feel a a sense of righteousness if they go out there and protest. What good was achieved by going to this time of play, as you say, a, a time of fun, and doing what they did? 
And they're very few in number, and I don't think they speak for the Palestinian people. I can understand people from the region feeling particularly aggrieved. Of course I can. But I've got limited patience with very white, very left-wing people who think that they're somehow advancing social justice by shouting at Santa Claus. I actually thought that she was probably, the the mayor was probably incredibly surprised that they would protest one of her events for many of the reasons, John, that that Michael just pointed out. They are, uh, I think, you know, on the left of the spectrum for sure. Yeah, but I mean, they are looking to create as much of a disturbance as possible. And I know that we may address another angle in all of this, because a lot of these people seem to be comparing themselves to anti-apartheid activists in the 1980s and 90s. And I don't think that there is a fair comparison. But I think... It is odd that they would target Olivia Chow. But like I said, I think that's this oddball uh, polarity we have within, uh, you know, I mean, I realize Michael was saying within the right as well. But no, I mean, Justin Trudeau has a hard time managing his caucus these days precisely because there are those who think he's not been strident enough about condemning uh, Hamas. And then there are those who think that he's too full throated in support of Israel. Well, I, I think the, the Liberal Party has a problem, but the NDP, I mean, yes. and I do know the party relatively well, there's a younger, hard left. I mean, because I believe Jagmeet Singh and Olivia and provincial leaders have handled this rather well, actually. But there, there's a hard uh, fringe, which is quite left wing, generally younger people. And they it's almost as though they want the Tories to win. We saw this in Ontario politics when the Conservatives were on the ropes about the Greenbelt, a valid Ontario issue. And you had one MPP in particular who said the most, I think, irresponsible things. And immediately, all of media and all of politics was focused on something other than Greenbelt. The Tories must have been just clapping their hands and thanking this woman for doing that. Well, I have to think you're talking about Sarah Jama. And the interesting yeah, thing there is there are a whole bunch of people in the NDP who are absolutely outraged that she got cashiered over her stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there are uh, a great number of people, however, broadly speaking, who supported the NDP, who feel quite the opposite. Yeah, I mean, the NDP, we're not speaking about a revolutionary socialist party here, and it differs depending on parts of the country. But in Ontario um, and in, in, uh, in, in Toronto, and, you know, Olivia is an NDP person, the party is, is centre-left, and the people who vote for it are centre-left. And the hard left feel, and we've seen this in other countries, seen it in Britain in particular, with Jeremy Corbyn being given the boot. The hard left feel that the, the, the major left-wing parties no longer speak for them. Well, I personally think that's a rather a good thing. Yeah, and we talked about this this morning, Deb, uh, the aspect of she's the mayor of Toronto. Could you just please, you know, clean the water, remove the trash, get the TTC working, figure out how somebody could transit through downtown Toronto in a car at some point. Uh, But can we stop having these debates at city council about international affairs and union, you know, stances from the United Nations? Well, especially because they're going to hike our taxes, but I don't think we put that on the the agenda for today. I apologize, John, you mentioned what is now being called the case of the Indigo 11, which are are those who were charged after uh, what looked like it was paint, but what looked like blood over Heather Reisman. But I think we do not have time before the break to do that. So I'm going to take us to a very, I think, important, but a little bit lighter topic. And I want to start with you, John Moore. Sleep. There's a new study out that says if you have interrupted sleep in your 30s and 40s, that you are twice as likely a decade later to have issues around cognitive memory and cognitive processing. You must have the worst sleep schedule of anybody I know, other than me, perhaps, and that's not because of the job (laughs) I do. Does this worry you? 
Are you seeing it? <laughs> no, because you know what? And Dr. Mitch can probably better inform this story or maybe Dan Riskin. I wonder, you know, what are the co-variables to all of this? I've had a lot of people expressing severe concern this morning. I mean, there are people who listen to the show who already think that I'm probably suffering from some form of dementia. But yeah, I have a ridiculous schedule. I go to bed at nine. I wake up at about two, two thirty. I try to get a nap in the afternoon. It's a bit like having a cell phone that's at a 50 percent charge and you're never going to quite get it to 100. But at the same time, if you look at some of the other aspects of people who had sleep disorders and then, you know, 10, 20 years later had a higher incidence of dementia, uh, there were people who had um, high body mass, uh, suffered from depression, had anxiety. So you have to wonder if sleep is the cause or a signal of things that lie ahead. Oh, that's too complicated for me. Michael Corrin, <laughs> quick thoughts. <laughs> I, I did have an answer prepared, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I just say this to John, wait till he gets a bit older, because what then will wake you up in the middle of the night will not be anything to do with doing a radio show. It'll be something entirely different, and you'll have to go to a little room at least twice a night. But you've got that to look forward to, John, in the years to come. Yeah, well, that's the thing. As you have more time on your hands to sleep, you have less ability to sleep. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, on that lovely note, we'll take a break. We'll be back with John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, Michael Korn, the Reverend, and also a News Talk 1010 contributor. You're listening to Deb Hutton filling in for Reshmi Nair. This is The Rush on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. It's Deb Hutton sitting in for Reshmi Nair this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. And I'm also joined by today's smart speakers, John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, right here on News Talk 1010, and the Reverend Michael Korn, also a News Talk 1010 contributor. There's a star story that gets, uh, I think, most of us thinking about how much we really see in the way of having a peer, a jury of your peers, which is supposed to be the way that, that trials in this country and elsewhere are viewed. And the reason for that is, quite frankly, one of cost. If you work for a big employer, your employer might give you that time off paid, and so you can go and be part of a jury pool. For others who might be a sole caregiver, um, too many of those folks make a, a case for getting out of jury duty, and many of them are actually successful in making the case. There is a theory then that says maybe we need to pay, whether it's reimbursing employers, whether it's direct pay, to make sure that everyone, therefore truly a jury of your, quote, peers, is able to attend jury duty when asked randomly to do so. Flip side of that is that is a huge bill to pay. Michael Corrin, your thoughts on that? I think there is some payment if the trial goes after a certain period of time. It's and minimal. It's, it's minimal. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I was summoned to jury duty a few years ago, and it was very difficult for me um, to actually take part in it. And, and they were very decent about it. And I sat there in a room with hundreds of other people. And, and I mean, I think this is an issue. I'm, I'm not sure. It's a bit like making it illegal not to vote, as they do in some countries. Does that really help democracy? Will this help the system if we pay people? I just don't know the answer to this. I have to be absolutely honest with you. I mean, it's quite clear that juries, I don't think they do represent mainstream society, because as you say, there are all sorts of reasons that people can avoid being on a jury. But payment, uh, what sort of people do we then attract? If it becomes preferable to be on a jury than not be on a jury, that's equally problematic. So I actually don't know. But I would argue that for all of its problems, the jury system we have in this country is still pretty good. 
John, any thoughts to improve it? Or do we just, as Michael says, it's pretty good, so we accept that it's the best of bad systems, maybe? One of the things I was curious about this morning when I was talking with Mark Farrant, who's always been an advocate for people serving jury duty, mostly because he served as a juror on a particularly harrowing trial. And so one of the first times he and I ever spoke, he was advancing the idea that juries, uh, members, should be entitled to get some form of therapy when it's over. And I don't think that makes you a special snowflake. I mean, it's pretty awful sitting there looking at evidence photographs of somebody who was shot to death. When we get to, um, you know, whether or not to pay jury members, I think it's a good idea. I was curious, and he didn't have the hard figures at hand, how many people are we talking about a year in the province of Ontario? Because remember, you can always opt for a judge trial. If you opt for a jury trial, it's probably because you think your lawyer can finesse something. But And, and Michael, you can't identify him because it was an off-the-record com- conversation. But there was a famous defendant who once said, never allow 12 housewives to decide your fate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's an inside joke I'm just going to keep moving on from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, John and I had a chance, Michael, this morning to talk about the, the Prime Minister's Jamaica vacation, and uh, even though it met the test of the Integrity Commissioner this time, whether or not this is just another disaster from a public relations and a political perspective for the Prime Minister. So I'll give you a shot at uh, uh, your general view of of how well he did when he took his family to Jamaica. Oh, golly. I mean, this, at this point, um, if the prime minister walked on water, there'd be complaints that he couldn't swim. There's <laughs> nothing he can do. I mean, what he did was not in itself wrong. However, if I was that low in the polls with an election not too far away, I think I would say, you know what? I've traveled quite widely in my life and I will do in the future. This time, I'm going to holiday somewhere in this country or even stay at home and live in my rather nice house. It wasn't a good thing to do. The optics, even if the optics aren't fair, I mean, you, you know better than I do, politics isn't a, ga- a fair game. He must have realized this would be shown at this point as being him not caring, not empathizing with the people. So, uh, no, it was not a good thing to do. Even though the law wasn't broken, I think the law of politics, particularly at his point in his political career, disasters. John Moore, a number of years ago, right after the uh, Ford government got elected, they brought in the ability for municipalities, municipal councillors, to veto local electricity projects in their communities. And the reason, of course, the genesis of that was that there were a number of communities that felt that uh, windmills in particular, but some solar projects had been sort of forced down their throats and they didn't have any say over it. So as a SOP to municipalities and as a response and uh, against the Liberal government's environmental policies around energy elect, um, uh, development, they brought in this veto. What's happening now is every little council, every little project, every big project is now going to council. There is an active uh, lobby, in particular the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, that is generating a lot of opposition, in particular to natural, natural gas plants. And we, if we don't get this fixed, if communities aren't willing hosts, We're going to find ourselves in not too distant future with a gap between what we need in our electricity grid and what we have. Is it time maybe for the Ford government to rethink the notion of willing host or municipal veto or whatever you want to call it to make sure that we have enough capacity in the system? This is one of those funny things where something sounds like a good idea. Hey, let's democratize things and allow locals to weigh in on what they want in their community. But of course, nobody wants a a turbine. Nobody wants a gas gas 
plant, as we learned from the previous provincial liberal administration. Nobody wants any of this stuff in their community. So it's uh, sort of empowered the nimbyism. And one of the interesting aspects of it, this the whole idea was that the, you know, the new Ford administration wanted to declare war on pretty well anything the liberals stood for. So they went up against green energy. But now we're not even building gas plants. And so we're facing a fairly significant shortfall in electricity. Michael, I do a terrible job of navigating these panels because I talk too much and and, uh, set things up. But I know there's a topic that you actually want to address, so I am going to move on. And that is that the Pope is calling for a ban on surrogacy and what he says is the commercialization of pregnancy. Your thoughts? Uh, It it pains me that this man takes one step forward and one back. Just recently he spoke about... uh, civil unions, if you like, not not even full equal marriage, just blessing gay couples who, who wanted to show their love and devotion in, in, in a church. And it was very qualified, but it was it was a step forward. Why does he think he has to have an opinion on so many of these issues? I understand the Catholic system. Goodness me, I understand it. But I don't remember I've never read in the Gospels Jesus commenting on every single issue of the day or any of his followers. The fact is that people who, I mean, we're lucky, we have four children, it it was something that came fairly naturally, but if you desperately want to show your love to a child and you want another way of of caring for a child, loving another human being, who is the Pope and why would the Pope say that that is wrong? As long as it's all done ethically and it's not a financial concern exclusively, there's nothing wrong with it at all and much, very much that's good. I wish he would stop doing this. Okay, and Michael, am I engaging in sacrilege if I express the impression that the Virgin Mary was the ultimate surrogate? <laughs> yes, you are, and I will happily now burn you at the stake. But that's <laughs> well, on that note, gentlemen, I'll leave that topic for you tomorrow morning. John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, Reverend Michael Korn, News Talk 1010 contributor. Thank you to both of you for joining me this afternoon on The Rush. You've been listening to our Smart Speaker Series, Deb Hutton sitting in for Rush Minair on The Rush on News Talk 1010.